Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Thanks to Hollywood and endless documentaries, it's no secret that in the 1930s and 40s, the Nazis had a strong interest in the supernatural and the occult. Over 70 years later, the general public is still fascinated with their interests. My guest today is Dr. Eric Kurlander, who is Professor of Modern European History at Stetson University. He studied at Harvard University for both his master's degree and PhD, teaching three years at Harvard before coming to Stetson in 2001. He offers courses on modern German, European, and world history. Eric is an expert on Nazi Germany and the Third Reich. Some of his past works include Living with Hitler, Liberal Democrats in the Third Reich, and The Price of Exclusion, Ethnicity, National Identity, and the Decline of German Liberalism. Today, Eric joins us to talk about his new book, Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich, which offers the first comprehensive study of the supernatural in Nazi Germany. Today we discuss how the Third Reich drew upon a wide variety of occult practices, esoteric sciences, and pagan religious ideas to gain power, shape propaganda and policy, and pursue their dreams of racial utopia and empire. Now Eric Kurlander, author of Hitler's Monsters, joins me via Skype. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique Eric Kurlander, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Great to be here. Well, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into studying Nazi Germany as a career? Well, I started out really as a German historian or modern Europeanist with a German focus. My first two books were on liberals in Germany um, from the 1890s to the 1930s and then in the Third Reich. And it's only, I think, a combination of a longtime interest in kind of the supernatural um, the macabre, horror writing and fiction, and then recognizing that the period I was studying, the Third Reich, had so much mythology around it in that context. The, the, the two things together were kind of a joint, um, had a kind of joint gravitational pull. So when I was thinking about my third book, I thought, you know what, I'd really like to know how much of this is true. And I have the language and archival experience now to do it. So, so why not um, investigate the link between Nazism and the supernatural? That must have been an interesting and fun experience to bring both your interests together in one project. Yeah, I guess my, my private interests, as many Americans are you know, interested in these kinds of pop cultural uh, ideas or mythologies. Oh, sure, sure. And then, and then my professional. So really, that's the way I look at it. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about that pop culture. Um, the Nazis and the occult show up in American pop culture. We, you think of Indiana Jones as a prime example. Why do you think we're so fascinated by this, even today? Well, so one of the things that I maybe believed in a kind of inchoate way before I started the research, but, and I'm not the first person to theorize this, but I do think in a a post-religious world or a world where traditional religions broken down, right? Which started to really happen in the 19th century, but accelerated maybe in the wake of the Second World War. You need something to believe in that explains the inexplicable or the spiritual or what's mystical or the idea that there's something bigger than ourselves and just the material world we see. 
Um, and I think Nazism as a phenomena is very, um, I guess, susceptible to that kind of interpretation because it was so dark and so evil and had a kind of mystique around it. So in the West, where we're already fascinated by science fiction and horror and mythology, um, you look at the popularity in England and America of things like whether it's Tolkien or Harry Potter or vampire movies, um, the fact that there was this inkling of, of reality about, we didn't, you know, no one knows to what extent it was true, about Nazism being interested in that, I think fed into this desire for something supernatural, mythological that infuses our pop culture that's become in a way a kind of substitute religion after World War II. And Nazism is, is just kind of a, a magnet for that kind of thinking. Okay, so we have this um, materialism that kind of leaves people with a there's got to be something more mentality, and, and that's where this comes in. Well, and the traditional religion isn't really working for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not saying Nazism per se is what they're attracted to, but something that's mystical, dark, wrapped up in some ways with explaining politics and foreign policy and can be tied into contemporary conspiracy theories about what the government's doing and Area 51 and secret rockets. And it helps, it helps Americans make sense of a very complicated world if they don't want to do the hard work of, you know, actually reading the newspaper and, and academic history and political science. And, you know, this is an, it, it's all, it's an easy way to explain things, to resort to the kind of mythologies um, post-World War II mythologies that Nazism is so kind of um, good at, at facilitating. All right. Well, one of those uh, mediums that people learn about Nazism and their interests is through documentaries. And there's an endless amount of documentaries on this subject. Um, a lot of them deal with the Nazi supernatural interests, their occult interests. Uh, but you uh, take some issue with some of those documentaries. Why is that? Well, I, I'm not sure it's just the genre of the supernatural, but I think many of those documentaries really straddle the line between fact and fiction by using this kind of rhetorical device. They say, could it be that, right? And if you, you, you preface something with could it be, you can say anything and then at the end say, well, we don't, we don't quite know. But many people realize, oh, it wasn't whether it could be, it really probably was, right? And so many of the things you find in those documentaries are either pure speculation or they're speculations based on some element of fact, but taken out of context or, or exaggerated, which isn't great when we're in a period, I would argue, where it's very hard for the average person with all the information out there to separate fact from fiction. When documentaries on the History Channel or National Geographic aren't doing the hard work, maybe, of, of providing the appropriate context, that can be very problematic. There's a documentary about it. It must be true. Right. So, you know, to get, I'll, quintessential example would be the bell, the Nazi bell, which I felt obligated to mention. You know, so here's where you, to just a methodological dilemma I faced. I knew by the end of my research, and I didn't have time to research everything in the book 
in terms of primary research, right? That it was all my own. Some of it was re I relied on other people's books, a lot of it, right? Because it's synthetic work. And it was pretty clear there's no hard evidence that the Nazis created the equivalent of a antimatter or, you know, kind of um, energy device that created uh, some kind of um, new energy source that may have led to the ability to kind of create flying saucers or whatever is associated with the Nazi bell. But I thought I should mention it. So there's a couple paragraphs. I say, here's what some of the crypto historians say. Here's the documents to the extent that we have any of them. Here's a scientist we do know work with the Third Reich, but it's not clear they worked on this and certainly didn't find anything. And a couple people have read the book. No one said that that's inappropriate, but they're like, well, why even mention it? And my feeling is, well, if it's going to, if people are talking about it in the popular sense in these documentaries, what if they created an anti-gravitational energy source? And what if they created flying saucers? Or what if the Foo Fighters were really these flying saucers? I felt I should address that in a scholarly work and then say, you know, we really don't have evidence for this. And that's where you feel the need as an historian to address what's in the popular sphere rather than completely dismiss it because it's become such a kind of misnomer. If it's part of the conversation now, you have to talk about it. Right. Um, so what's the academic conversation surrounding this topic? Uh, it seems that in the historiography, there's maybe been a trend to separate the Nazis from occultism. Yeah, I think, I mean, just very briefly, early on, already maybe in the 20s and 30s, contemporaries did kind of view the Nazis as explicitly trying to draw on people's desire for a spiritual kind of fulfillment um, outside the realm of religion. They saw mystical elements. You know, they had the, these giant parades and nighttime pagan rallies. And so a lot of liberals and socialists and very famous social scientists in Germany in the 30s and 40s were already saying the Nazis are trying to draw on what we might now call a cult or pagan ideas. And that kind of culminated in the 60s and 70s with lots of good, but also some questionable work tying the Nazis to all this kind of supernatural, what we might now call what I call supernatural history. And then this is my kind of theory. I don't get into the details on this in the book, but since you asked, I think with the realization of the Holocaust as the de definitive event, if not for the entire 20th century, and some people would say it is certainly defining the Third Reich, trying to, to link everything to supernatural ideas or paganism or this bizarre SS cult almost seemed to diminish the importance and magnitude of what the Nazis carried out. And also their obviously technologically innovative approach to war, the fact that they had a massive industrial economy. So I think a lot of historians in the 60s and 70s started to react against this this idea that the Nazis were somehow trying to create a substitute religion or linked in some ways to the occult mythology, that, would, that was a way diminishing the magnitude of what they carried out and also the links between what they did and what other industrial societies had done or could do. So you get a lot of Marxist and later on what we might call functionalist, structuralist, functionalist historiography in the 70s and 80s saying, you know what, the Nazis are just an extreme form of imperialism or capitalism or industrial society gone wrong. And that's a society that's based in science and technology and economics. 
And once that happened in the 70s and 80s, anyone who tried to make this other argument was kind of dismissed as not really being a solid social scientist looking at the larger picture. So by the 90s, you had a period where people had said, it's not about supernatural ideas or castles or, or Himmler's cult that really didn't do anything. It's about the fact that they were eugenicists who fetishized Darwin and they were capitalists who wanted you know, to make money at any cost and they were imperialists who would eliminate anyone who they didn't see as fitting into their empire. And, and you know, that was what was important. When, by the time I started looking at it, we, we had started to get what I would call a post-revisionist trend where historians started to say, you know what, we can do both. We can accept that the Nazis were part of a larger imperialist, capitalist, modern scientific regime that tried to control and eliminate and reorder society in a way that they saw fit. And also accept that they drew on in doing that certain ideas or traditions or ideologies that may or may not be prevalent everywhere and may have supernatural or religious content. And I think that's kind of my exit point. And there hasn't been that much historiography in the last 20 or 30 years that we've even been able to kind of say what I just said. And then maybe the last 10 years has started to see this return of an interest in the occult. Does that make sense? It does. Religious ideas, philosophical ideas, intellectual ideas, those things matter. And it's not just scientific or social scientific economic forces that drive human behavior. And it's not just ideas that are about economics, right? Or about um, political organization. It's ideas that may be, may seem to us to be irrational or religious in content that could motivate a modern society to do certain things or think a certain way. That's the important, um, that the modern is compatible with irrational or religious or spiritual ideas. That's, I think, the really important insight. It, the, the two don't, they're not mutually exclusive. Well, let's dive into what happened in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so let's go back to the 19th century. You have a lot of German folklore and superstition. Uh, there's a long history there in um, Germany and the surrounding areas of Europe. Uh, how did these ideas shape Nazi beliefs? Um, you talk in the book a lot about witchcraft and especially vampirism uh, as being significant to the Nazi worldview. Well, so that I think the big point about the 20s that I try to make is you already had what I call a supernatural imaginary that developed in the course of the 19th century maybe throughout Europe, but especially in Central Europe, that had three kind of elements to it. Uh, a kind of neo-pagan um, or religious renaissance, which wasn't really as invested in traditional Christianity as it was in Eastern religions, uh, neo-pagan religions, witchcraft, as you mentioned, witchcraft as a kind of or-Germanic collection of folk practices or folk religious beliefs not as some evil thing that had something to do with Satan, or Satan certainly in this cosmology wouldn't have been evil, right? These ideas percolated throughout the 19th century and were already there to be exploited, um, were already widely studied by folklorists and pop culture writers in the 20s. So that's one set of these three clusters of ideas. You then have what I call occult doctrines, right? These ideas, um, 
like theosophy, ariosophy, and um, anthroposophy, that take three of the more famous doctrines. People who believe that if you learn certain kind of occult and border scientific practices like astrology and pendulum dowsing and biodynamic farming, and you combine that with a belief in Darwin and evolution, you can somehow uncover the real history of mankind and a kind of quasi-religion, or as my colleague Corinna Tritel calls it, a science of the soul. And these kind of syncretic doctrines, which, which we would call a cult, became very popular in the late 19th century, not just in Germany and Austria, in the, in the West in general, and in Russia. Um, and these are very powerful um, forces in Austrian Germany, these occult doctrines. And then you have, which again, all three of these clusters are overlap in some ways. You have what I call border science, which are scientific practices. The people who believe in them would argue that this is just science. They're just an extension of physics and chemistry and psychology. But they're sciences that mainstream science hasn't yet recognized because they're not tied into the cosmos or the kind of hidden forces that infuse everything in the way that, that these people are. And this would be parapsychology, cosmobiology, biodynamic agriculture, world ice theory. As I argue in the book, they're really faith-based. None of these border sciences were able to be reproduced uh, reliably in the lab or in nature by people working independently over time. But their practitioners claim they could be. And they didn't want to always, they, they made it very um, clear they didn't want to be seen as occultists, that what they were doing wasn't the, a new version of some occult doctrine. It was an actual science. So, for example, pendulum dowsing, you know, walking around with a divining rod, which is clearly a medieval occult practice or even a folk practice. The people who did that in the late 19th and 20th century called it radiesthesia, that they were finding radiation, waves of, of radiation below the earth and coming out of the cosmos using sophisticated you know, pieces of metal on a string or, or professional dowsing rods. So, th so this border science, this resuscitation of border science was also very popular by the 20s. And what I argue is that Nazis... Most of these practitioners have a scientific background, or at least some of them do, right? Yeah. What was interesting, though, is they would very often have a scientific background that either wasn't the, the terminal degree. So they had a master's in engineering, but what they were doing really can only be tested if you had a PhD in physics or geology, let's say. Or they were amateur. So they might have, had, they might have been a, a doctor of law, but they were practicing you know, astrology, right? So some of them did have an academic background, but it wasn't always the academic background you would assume you would need to be working in that border scientific area. And the point I'm making with all of this, which other historians now agree on, is the Nazis were not creating anything new. I'm not arguing that the Nazis came along in the 20s and made all this stuff up. Um, and then foisted it on the German people. I'm arguing that in Germany and Austria, these ideas were already very popular among many middle-class, lower-middle-class Germans, some working-class. And the Nazis, both out of conviction, because some of them practiced or believed in, and out of utility, exploited these ideas, both consciously and unconsciously, in getting people to believe in their movement. So it wasn't 
um, that they created something new. It's just that they were the only mass party I've seen in German history, in modern German history, and probably in Western history, to have so many ties to these kinds of traditions, pagan, alternative religion, occultism, and border science, and not just have those ties privately, but in some ways consciously draw upon them for political, social, um, geopolitical reasons. They're really exploiting to... this segment of the population. Right. Or, or speaking to them, dialoguing with them in a way they can understand that the traditional parties, right, that the major parties in the 20s, before the Nazis started to get votes, were the liberals in the center, capitalism, free markets, maybe a little state intervention. We believe in representative government, civil rights, rationality, science. The socialists and the communists on the left, very materialist. Um, and then on the right, you had two parties, the Catholic Center Party, which was grounded in Catholicism. That was their kind of core values. So they, you know, that was kind of a tradition that was pretty insulated from the stuff I'm talking about. And then you had the conservatives who were basically, you know, linked to the evangelical church in some ways, also had some nationalist and, and folkish aspects. But those are the major parties, and they dominated the interwar period until the late 20s. The Nazis were a fringe movement. And my argument is that part of the reason they were able to succeed by the end of the 20s is they tapped into these ideas, these alternative ways of knowing, in ways that these traditional parties didn't. It wasn't just the Depression, or put it another way. That's important. Without the Depression, the Nazis never come to power. But why the Nazis and not another fringe party or not the socialists who, you know, in, in France and Great Britain, labor benefited from economic crisis, from the decline of liberalism. In Germany, it was the, the racist pagan right. Well, maybe that's linked to this larger supernatural imaginary that was already quite popular. Okay, so when we talk about these occultists, I think the general public, when they hear the word occult, they tend to think of people in a cult. So when you say occultism, what do you mean? What were these Germans in the early 20th century and late 19th century involved in? Well, so I already mentioned the three syncretic doctrines that most historians accept as being um, occult, right? Uh, Ariosophy, anthroposophy, and theosophy. And if we just talk about theosophy, that was a doctrine developed by Madame Blavatsky in the mid to late um, a Russian emigre to Britain and then the United States, who um, in the late, mid to late 19th century wrote a book called The Secret Doctrine, which basically argued that there were a series of root races going back into prehistory, may have been linked to the, 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 mo the purest and most powerful of those races, may have been created by some kind of divine intervention or some kind of alien seed that came to Earth. And then these races developed and went and, and were, the world went through various stages. And the, the superior race, which is what we know of as the Atlantean civilization, then declined, possibly through a flood or racial mixing with inferior races. Atlantean is in Atlantis. Atlantis, exactly. Okay. And she gained this wisdom, she claimed, by studying ancient Indian traditions, religion, occult, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, and she argued Darwin. So she tried to basically combine modern biology and evolutionary science with Eastern religions and occult doctrines and called it theosophy. 
And this became very popular across the West, but in Germany and Austria, especially Austria, it developed two offshoots, one called Anthroposophy, um, under a guy named Rudolf Steiner, which was a little more racist than Theosophy, and a little more trying to be overtly scientific, though it wasn't terribly scientific. And then Ariosophy, also in Austria, um, kind of independently developed by two guys, Guido von Liszt and Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels at the turn of the century, who created their own Templar cults. And they had these, these castles where they would have pagan solstice festivals, and they claimed to be able to commune with Thor and Odin. And they all practiced astrology. One of the early like leaders of this Ariosophic movement, a guy named Rudolf von Sabatendorf, who later on helped co-found the Thule Society, was also the editor of the Astrologi Astrologische Rundschau, the, the chief astrological journal in Germany. So these doctrines were very powerful, and they drew on what we would call traditional occult ideas and practices. So most of these people practiced astrology. Most of these people believed in spiritualism and clairvoyance. Most of them thought you could commune with dead ancestors and, you know, use your mind to influence others. Um, they, they believed in yoga and meditation, dowsing, divining. Even Hitler had diviners come into the Reich Chancellor to look for cancer-causing death rays. So these traditions were all wrapped up in these, these various occult traditions and these occult doctrines that I just mentioned. So my, my point here is that these occult doctrines were very influential and involved traditional things we, we associate with the occult, like witchcraft, astrology, demonology, but put them in a, in a modern context that was easily digestible for the modern German and Austrian. Okay, so you mentioned one thing I want to talk about, which is the Thule Society. What was that and what was its influence on the Nazi party? Right. So what I try to do in the book is trace the genealogy of the Thule Society. So the, in, in the historiography, this is a perfect example of what we talked about earlier. Um, through the 60s or 70s, the Thule Society often came up as the shadowy organization that in some ways helped create the Nazi party. And then in the 80s and 90s, people say, well, yeah, some Nazis were in the Thule Society or, or went to their meetings but weren't officially members. But Hitler himself didn't like it and was never a member and made fun of them. And Goebbels was never a member. And they pretty quickly dismissed anyone who was in the Thule Society. So it's really not, not terribly useful to link those two things, right? And so that was my question, is what role does the Thule Society, which was an explicitly occult society, play? First of all, where did it come from? And then what role did it play going forward? Is there really a story there? First of all, it comes from a long tradition going back to the late 19th century of kind of folkish, esoteric groups. So if you take, for example, independently, let's say you're a German or Austrian historian who has no interest in the occult, and someone says, name the most famous anti-Semites and proto-Nazis, kind of racist, anti-Semitic leaders of the late 19th century. You name people like Theodor Fritsch, who is this guy from Saxony who wrote the anti-Semitic catechism already in the 1880s. He was like the most famous anti-Semite in Germany. You talk about someone like Karl Lueger or Georg von Schönerer, the leader of the Pan-Germans in Austria, 
who Hitler openly talked about as models for his own views on politics. And what's interesting about the people I just mentioned is they were almost all in, at some point, one of these occult societies. Um, whether it was the Templars, you know, Guido von Liszt, Ariosophic societies. Um, Theodore Fritsch was an Ariosoft, the guy I just mentioned, the anti-Semite. So much so that he founded his own folkish esoteric group before World War I called the German Order, which is kind of a knightly Masonic order, super racist. You had to prove you were an Aryan going back 300 years. They had weird occult rituals. They used the swastika this Indo-Aryan symbol of racial, spiritual purity in the sun, right? So the swastika was in use even before Nazi Party officially comes on the scene. All over the place. Because in the 19th century, people interested in Indo-Aryan religion and occultism recognized the swastika was a central kind of symbol there and appropriated it. So the Nazis, again, swastika was on everything. All these right-wing and anti-Semitic groups, almost all of them, used the swastika. My point being that before World War I, there was already thousands of these people running around. Some of them are famous to historians as anti-Semite. And what I point out in the book is many of them were also members of occult societies or esoteric, folkish, Templar orders. Whether they believed in astrology or not, they're hanging out in these groups, reading these journals. And one of them, this guy Theodor Fritsch, I mentioned, the most famous anti-Semite in Germany, arguably, Found his own order, the German order in 1912, the goal of which is to transcend all this kind of splintering he's seen in the right-wing anti-Semitic movement, which, like the Nazis 10 years later, wasn't getting a lot of votes. Everyone knows who they are. They're very loud. They're very shrill. Some Jewish intellectuals are afraid of them, but most parties dismiss them as the socialist leader does. It's a socialism of fools. Rather than looking at what capitalism actually does, they blame everything on Jews. And one of these guys, Theodor Fritsch, founds this order. At the same time, he founds a political association, almost like a party, called the Hammer Association, because he wants to transcend this culture of just getting together bourgeois society and complaining about everything. He wants to somehow get workers and peasants and intellectuals and army leaders to all join his party so they can get rid of Jews and communists and liberals and create a great German empire that's racially pure. So the occult group that he founds is linked to a political party. And during the war, this party doesn't really do very well. You know, there's a war going on. People don't want to pay dues. It's still very bourgeois. They still have weird debates over racial theory and astrology and stuff. But during the war, one of the chapters of the German order, the one in Munich, um, a guy named Hermann Pohl is kind of charged with resuscitating it, and he meets a guy named Rudolf von Sabatendorf, this head of the astrological journal I mentioned, and they together try to resuscitate the German order in Munich in 1917, near the end of the war. And it's not doing very well, and they have their kind of own independent traditions going on there. They're not getting a lot of supporters, but Sabatendorf, while he's working to create his own chapter of the German order, he meets a guy named Nauhaus, we saw this all in the book, who has his own working group called the Thule Society, named after the ancient Atlantean civilization that the occultists all talk about. But in Germanic tradition, it's called Tula or Thule, um, from, I think, ancient Greek or Roman maps, this kind of 
what, where Iceland might be. That's what they called the ancient Atlantean civilization that they thought had declined because the Aryans started mating with non-Aryans or there was a flood. So he's got this Thule Society, which is a kind of a cult discussion group. And Sabotendorf is like, maybe we can call our group the Thule Society. Because then it doesn't sound like a political party. It sounds like some kind of debating group, cult matters. And in 1918, in the last few months of the war, they, they create the Thule Society out of what was the German order. And what does the Thule Society then do in 1918, 1919? It tries to do what Taylor Fritsch was trying to do already in 1912, 1913, 1914, create a political basis for this movement. And many later Nazis turn out to have been attending their meetings. Hans Frank, the kind of head of the general government in Poland later on, Central and the, the Holocaust, was a member or at least an associate of the party. Dietrich Eckert went to their meetings. Rudolf Hess, the deputy Führer. So we have evidence that these Nazi, future Nazi leaders are going to Thule Society meetings. In this early milieu, these first few months, you have Nazis and people who would end up not being Nazis, all associated with the Thule Society. At some point, Harr, who's a leader of the Thule Society and who helps edit the paper, and this guy named Anton Drexler, who's a former railroad worker, I think, both start to say, you know what, we're still not getting workers. We're still not getting a lot of normal people. We're still meeting in the Four Seasons Hotel because, you know, that's where bourgeois people met. This is a society for elites still. It, it's still pretty elite, right? We're not reaching out. So they say, why don't we start a worker's circle to get more workers involved? And within about eight or ten weeks of that idea, they actually create a party called the German Workers' Party which was loosely associated at the time with the Thule Society through horror, because horror was a member, but wasn't explicitly part of the Thule Society. It was the beginning of a break from the Thule Society. So you know what, this is still elite, it's still kind of pre-war and it's elitism. Maybe it's still a little too into, interested in the occult per se, but the point is members of the Thule and Nazis who were associated with the Thule were now working within this new workers' party in early 1919. And Hitler came to one of their meetings in September, was impressed by the ideas they were talking about, not necessarily how they articulated the ideas, was invited to join and became a leader of that party. So what I try to show in the book is you don't have to have Hitler saying, yes, the Thule Society is the basis of the Nazi party. He can even make fun of some occultists if he wants. It's clear that the party and a lot of its leaders came out of that same milieu. That's what I try to show. Now, what about Hitler himself? He's coming of age during this period. He's starting to get involved in politics at this time. He's being exposed to these ideas. To what extent does he end up believing a lot of this stuff? Right. So, you know, this is a complicated question. I often say at this point that Hitler was kind of the perfect representative of the Nazi relationship to these ideas. He was not as authentically invested in them as someone like Himmler or Hess, important Nazi leaders who really believed in a lot of this, or at least wanted to experiment with occult and border scientific practices, not just privately, but sometimes through the state. But he was probably more authentically interested in some of these, or at least exploiting them, than maybe Reinhard Heydrich, who was the head of the security service and just hated any sectarian ideas. If you weren't just a devout Nazi because Nazism was awesome, he didn't trust you. So whether you were a Catholic, 
a Jehovah's Witness or an astrologer, Heydrich went after you. Um, so Hitler is probably somewhere in the middle, meaning he has, in a lot of ways, rhetorical kind of moments where he clearly invokes an idea that comes from this milieu or sounds a lot like Ariosophy or even explicitly talks about world ice theory and how convincing it is. But he's never as systematically interested in those ideas as someone like Himmler, who has his whole his research institute have whole divisions that research these things. Or Rudolf Hess, who keeps trying to, you know, he, he opens um, health institutes that are dedicated to natural healing and, and occult um, and border scientific uh, medicine. So there's a spectrum there. And I would say Hitler's somewhere in the middle. Okay, so more of an involvement with these ideas, not quite the enthusiast of Himmler and some of his other associates. Right, but not skeptical enough to ever ban them. So many of the Nazis who criticized traditional occult doctrines or ideas were not, in fact, rejecting the practices. They were rejecting the groups out of which they came or the individuals in charge or making very fine distinctions in nomenclature. So if you called it scientific astrology, or if you called it radiesthesia, then the Navy or the SS could experiment with it. If you called it just astrology, or if you called it dowsing, then it didn't sound as scientific, and they'd say, oh, we don't believe in that. So like many occultists, this is a very important point. Um, it took me a while in my research to realize the commonalities here. Occultists in the modern period always want to claim, especially the border scientists who, who really want credit from other scientists, that what they're doing is scientific, but the other people, you know, the, someone with the, 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 someone, the palm reader, the tarot card um, woman on the corner, they're, of course, charlatans. We can prove it. But what we do when we read the stars is science. And the Nazis have the same internal debate. So when it it looks superficially like the Nazis are prosecuting or persecuting people who are occultist. What I find is they're actually trying to control them or, or sort them into those who are acceptable because they're Aryan and support the regime and scientific, and those who are seen as Jewish and consumerist and commercial. It's not that they're rejecting the ideas per se and the practices per se. And that's really important because if you don't look closely at the context, it looks like the Nazis, like they're hostile to almost everything, right? I mean, they try to control everything, are hostile to occultism. But they're really very nuanced towards occultism. Well, you've kind of alluded to this already. The Nazis, once they do gain power and Hitler becomes Fuhrer after 1933, they do have somewhat of an antagonistic relationship with occultism once they're in power, which is kind of interesting considering some of the beliefs within the party, especially in its origins. Why do they become somewhat antagonistic towards occultist groups? Well, that's just it. So I, they're never collectively antagonistic towards occult per se. I would, I would just argue that just never happened. What you get is you get kind of a waxing and waning. So between 33 and 37, I argue in the book, even though Hitler's made fun of wandering scholars dressed in bearskins, and Goebbels has at times in speeches in the 20s got frustrated that so many of the people who are Nazi are also interested in natural healing and getting to these 
useless debates about which kind of herbs work best. And he even has a speech, which I cite, where he says, look, if the focus, if the racist anti-Semitic movement, instead of debating natural healing practices, was focused on getting power like we are, we wouldn't be in this situation, right? He doesn't say you shouldn't be interested in natural healing, only that why is that what you're focusing on? So there is a kind of frustration, which I think explains the break from the Thule Society, with privileging occult ideas or practices over politics and power. But once they're in power, they don't immediately start arresting all these people or throwing them in jail. For four years, pretty much the asteroid, I mean, there, there's a case of Hitler writing a, a kind of nice letter to the head of the 1935 Astrological Conference. I forget what city it was in. Like, I hope you have a great conference, have fun kind of thing. I mean, this is not a regime that's going out of its way to ban or arrest or murder people who practice spiritualism, astrology, clairvoyance, what have you. But these are obviously alternative ways of viewing the world, which could be seen as a challenge to Nazism. And some Nazis are frustrated with it because, or, or they do see it as a kind of counter-enlightenment ideology, right? Some Nazis do claim to be, believe in science and evolution in some kind of rigorous way. And they're kind of not able to do anything about it until 37. What happens when, in 1937? It's, so it's very interesting. What I finally found in the archives is it turns out one of the leaders of the anti-occult group around Matilda Ludendorff, who's the second wife of Erich von Ludendorff, the famous World War I general, who is the, the guy who marched with Hitler in the 1923 putsch, the Hitler-Ludendorff putsch attempt, and the famous Hall putsch. His wife is a psychologist who superficially seems to be the scientist who hates occultism, right? In some history books, you kind of get that impression. She's a scientist who fights occultism with her group called the Ludendorff Circle. Turns out they had their own religion called people who support, a, I forget, the Society for a German Religion or something, which has its own kind of bizarre beliefs, which they insist on, which are related to Aryan pagan beliefs. And even says that reading the stars in an Aryan way is good, but not in the Jewish way or the Middle Eastern way. And yet they have this circle which is criticizing occultism all the time. One of its members is a Nazi named Karl Peltz. He's in the police. I think he's in the criminal police, not the Gestapo, the secret police, but he's a member of the police. And he writes a letter to one of the leaders of the criminal police, Artur Neba, in 37, saying, look, it's been four years. He's ghostwriting books about how horrible occultism is. Though then at the end, he'll say things like scientific occultism is another thing. I'm not saying that's wrong. You know, who knows? Maybe that's right. I'm just saying that popular Jewish occultism fit. Anyway, so this guy writes a letter. Neba sends it to Heydrich the head of the security service, most famous for being the guy who organized the Holocaust. Heydrich, I mentioned already, just hates everything sectarian. And Heydrich forwards it to Himmler and says, look, it has been four years. We claim we're, we're against sectarianism. Isn't astrology sectarian? Isn't anthroposophy sectarian? Aren't these alternative worldviews? And basically all he's able to get out of Himmler is agreement that Neba, the head of the criminal police, it's so interesting. You can literally see him arbitrating between Heydrich and Himmler. He writes a letter to most of the SS and the police, basically saying, you can go after the charlatans and the non-scientific people. It's time we do that. 
But if someone really seems to be authentically, scientifically investigating the way the stars influence human life or the way that you know, cosmic forces help agriculture, leave them alone or even sponsor them. We just don't want the charlatans, the non-scientific people. And what's interesting is around the exact same time, other offices somehow either it's not coordinated by Hitler. Hitler has very little role in what in this kind of quasi crackdown. But the Society for kind of um, public health under this guy Bernard Hormann, the propaganda ministry, they all start kind of moving against occultism and occult groups in certain ways. So in 37 and 38, they banned some astrological societies and journals for the first time. Few people often accused of also being gay, for example. It's not it's usually not just because you're an astrologer. You're a communist, you're gay, you're part of a subterranean Catholic resistance group. Some of them get arrested, very few. And, but there is this sense that they're moving against occultists and sectarianism in general, right, in 37 and 38. And then it kind of dies down again. And by 39 and 40, as I show, the first couple of years of the war, you've actually got the Gestapo and Hitler intervening on behalf of magicians who are frustrated that this guy Peltz I mentioned, the one who wrote the initial letter, like, why aren't we moving against occultism? He and his, one of his friends will give demonstrations where they show how magic and occult and spiritual and clairvoyance and dowsing, how people supposedly do these things, but they're really not practicing magic. They're really, you know, just deceiving you. They're showing the it, tricks of the trade. Right, the tricks of the trade. They're, they're debunkers. They're professional debunkers. And, and I'll get into the paradox of what they're doing in a minute. But anyway, professional magicians, the head of the Professional Magicians Association, who happens to be friendly with Hitler, I have a picture of the book of him hanging out with Hitler, and he protests. And the Gestapo and Hitler say, you know what? You're really screwing this up for professional magicians. People you know, who have faith in that don't need to be you know, told that everything's scientific. Um, and so initially, they negotiate with the regime to just do some of the demonstrations they were doing, but not reveal everything. And then even that's deemed too much. And in 41, they're both told they can't do it anymore. So you have this small group of professional debunkers linked to the Ludendorff Circle. And in 41, when things are getting worse and worse for everyone else who's considered on the outs with the regime, by late 40, 41, the war is going on. They're basically told, you got to stop doing it. It's fine if people want to go to magic shows or harmlessly practice or believe in certain folk beliefs like astrology. Um, what's ironic about the whole thing is it turns out when they're being hired by, let's say, the German labor front to perform these demonstrations, it's usually to entertain troops or, or workers. So the people are there not so much to see how the tricks are done, but to see the tricks. So even though they think they're enlightening people, part of the reason they're getting hired is for the performance in the first place. This is what I call Hitler's magician's controversy. So my point is, very little's done the first eight years. There is an official crackdown, briefly, when Rudolf Hess flies to Scotland to negotiate peace before they invade the Soviet Union. And he's, he's Hitler's worried. deputy. He's the deputy Fuhrer. He has relatively little influence anymore by 41, but technically, had Hitler ever been assassinated, Hess would have replaced him in the party as the head of the party. That's, so he was an important person, especially early on in the 20s and 30s. This is not a marginal figure. He's very interested in the occult. He, 
He believes in magnetopathy, I think it's called, where if you have magnets above and below your bed, it'll kind of help you help prevent cancer. He has an astrologer. He believes in biodynamic agriculture. Of course, many Nazis do. And he apparently consulted an astrologer before picking what day he should leave. Um, I, I haven't seen that corroborated by a primary source, but I've seen secondary sources that have brought that up. In any case, that's what Goebbels and Rosenberg and Bormann tell Hitler. The reason he did this embarrassing thing is his astrologer told him to, and he's into all that weird stuff. So Hitler finally, eight years in, is like, okay, you're right. No more kid gloves. Go get all these occultists. It's time. Now, what's interesting about this, let's point out the three people I just mentioned who convinced Hitler it's time to move against occultists. You've got Goebbels, who has already for a year and a half been using Nostradamus, professional astrologers and, and dowsers he's hired, to help him come up with propaganda, interpreting Nostradamus to say the Germans are going to win all these different battles and ultimately the war. So you've got Goebbels as one of the people saying, let's go after the occultists now, and he's, and he's employing them, some of them. You then have Bormann saying this. Bormann hated Christianity, and he hated any kind of sectarian doctrines. He was a little like Heydrich. But Bormann privately, it turns out, was very into kind of paganism and a kind of um, this worldly kind of religion of nature. He had his kids reading um, Norse mythology to understand their role in, you know, the, the Third Reich. And when the, everything was falling down around them, they're listening to Wagner and reading mythology to understand why they're. So this is not a secularist. And then you've got Rosenberg, who, other than Himmler, was probably the most enthusiastic about creating a kind of Ur-Germanic religion, who also thought that witches practiced an Ur-Germanic religion and were killed by the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church was run by Jews who wanted to destroy witches as a way to destroy Germans, right? These are the three people saying we should go after Hess. So this hardly shows you a kind of organized front against supernatural thinking. What it shows you is a combination of rivalry, frustration with certain doctrines, which explains why it doesn't work, because they do this in May. June Heydrich finally gets to send his Gestapo out and harass all these people, arrest them, interrogate them, take their books. And already within like six weeks of that, Himmler's taking the books, the head of the SS, Heydrich's superior, putting them in his own library, sending them to other SS people who are fascinated by the occult so they can read and study them. The same books them to this confiscated. Yes. In 1942, to an institute run by an occultist, a parapsychologist in Alsace, and he and Schellenberg and other SS leaders, and Heydrich's totally aware of this, are start hiring these people to look for Mussolini. The Navy starts hiring them to look for battleships. So you can see how inefficient this so-called crackdown was. So we've talked about the regime's relationship with the occult. What were some things that they were very active about? Um, since they're not very enthusiastic about trying to repress occult activity, but they are somewhat active in sponsoring certain ideas, what you call border science. What are, what are some of those projects? I mentioned one of them, you know, Goebbels using astrologers, famous astrologers like Karl Kraft supposedly predicted an assassination attempt on Hitler, which is one reason Goebbels even knew about him. He had written a letter saying, I think around this date, Hitler will be, you know, someone will try to assassinate him. So that's one famous example. 
Two others that are worth mentioning. In 1942, some members of the Navy were wondering why the Battle of the Atlantic had turned um, in a negative way, right? So through 41 or 42, the U-boats were taking out far more British and, and early on American shipping once they joined than they were losing U-boats. And then 42, you start to see, I think, summer of 42, a change. Now, we know what was happening. It was a combination of the Americans finally accepting convoys, which the British had told them to use, but they hadn't been using because we weren't used to fighting um, large naval battles, um, turning off lights on the coast, radar and sonar to locate U-boats. There are all sorts of things we were doing, totally scientific, um, which were helping turn the tide of battle in the Atlantic. Um, one of the not Nazi naval officers, this guy named Roeder, I believe, said, well, I think what they're doing is they're using pendulums to locate our, our submarine. Um, either whether they're using it or not, we should try doing that to find their battleships and their destroyers. So he convinces the Navy to set up an institute for a few months to hire famous astrologers and pendulum dowsers, diviners, radiesthesiologists like Ludwig Straniak, who claimed he had discovered the eighth force of nature. He could, you know, find objects hundreds of miles away using a dowsing, using a pendulum, right? And he puts them in this institute and has them look for battleships, which they never found. It totally didn't work. Um, but they're getting paid by the Navy to do this stuff. There's a supernatural story here that collectively says this is a regime that's pretty invested in stuff that we wouldn't normally associate with a modern industrialized society. I'm not arguing that's the only thing the Navy does or that the Nazis would have won had they not done this, because it's not like this goes on for five years. But the fact that they're doing it systematically, using people who supposedly were persona non grata just a year earlier because of the Hess action. And now not only the out of concentration camps, if they ever were in a concentration, they're being paid by the regime. That's fascinating. What's even more fascinating, though, is within a year of this, the SS now decides after this Navy episode that they're going to get some of the same people together, this time in Wannsee, a very nice suburb of Berlin, to help find Mussolini, who's recently been captured. Hitler, I mean, obviously, it's very important. If they can get Mussolini and put him back in charge of northern Italy, they think that'll help them hold off the Americans. So they're desperate to find him. Himmler, who runs basically the security service, the intelligence services, the entire police, he's by 43, he's the second most powerful Nazi. He has Schellenberg and Neva. Remember Neva, the guy who wrote that letter? Well, we should go against some of them, but not all of them. He's like, let's, let's hire some of these astrologers and dowsers to find Mussolini. So they put all these guys uh, and women, uh, Gerda Walter, for example, para, a parapsychologist, in like 30, 40 of them, some of whom had to be released from concentration camps, some were already free, in this very nice villa. And they give them, and, and some of them are like, well, you know, we need, we need sufficient food and wine and all this stuff. Schellenberg complains in his memoirs. One of the, he was the head of the security service after Heydrich was assassinated. And Schellenberg complains how much money it costs giving them wine and food and cigarettes and everything they asked for. And they spend a few weeks with weird maps, you know, with maps of the Mediterranean. And 
to this day, it's not clear whether they actually found something. I mean, we assume they they didn't find Mussolini's location. Wilhelm Wolf, who would become Himmler's personal astrologer, claims they did. There's some evidence that it was found through, he was found, and they did rescue him, through conventional intelligence, code breaking, what have you, and that someone then fed it to the astrologers so Himmler would think it came from them, which would make him much more enthusiastic about the operation. Because it was it was an SS operation. It was this guy, Otto Scorsini, who was an SS Special Forces guy who carried it out. Um, either way, Himmler seems to have believed it was them who did it. Schellenberg, who is more skeptical, seems to think it's possible they found it. And whatever the case is, after they did this, because Himmler promised it, they were all freed. So if any had been persecuted for practicing occult doctrines, they were now free to go. And Himmler personally hired one of them, this guy Wolf, for the duration of the war to be his personal astrologer and tell him what he should do on all sorts of things. Let's talk about Himmler for a second. He's come up a lot in the last couple of minutes. He is widely known as being very enthusiastic about these ideas. And he's very interested in kind of crafting a Nazi religion. Um, he has a, a segment of the SS, and uh, you can correct me on the uh, pronunciation, the, the Anunnabi? Is, is that how you say it? Uh, the Anunnabi. That is basically dedicated to researching these kind of ideas. What are some things that, that this group that he set up did? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Anunnerba came out of um, a kind of office of the SS in the late 20s, early 30s, which is really just ancestor research. Like all these focus groups, I mentioned the German Order and the Thule Society. It was really important they could prove that everyone in it was an Aryan. And the SS was supposed to be an elite force, right? The SA, the stormtroopers, were just kind of anyone who would join the party who wasn't clearly Jewish uh, and, and would fight communists. You wanted the SS to be elite. So he set up this office. And out of that office, they started doing ancestor research. And they got into more kind of genealogy and then history. And so in 35, um, he decided he now had the money and the power to make this into, into a research institute, which initially, because it started with genealogy, was mostly humanities and social sciences. But quickly, as Himmler got more powerful and got more money and could threaten people directly and indirectly, he got more influence in the universities. He started to add hard social science and natural scientific offices to this. Some of the stuff they did was conventional, like meteor meteorology. He had a meteorological institute, but eventually the meteorological institute was run by world ice theorists who believed that the entire universe was created by giant balls of ice based on a weird dream that this Austrian kind of crazy Austrian had had. That was the people running his meteorology institute. And Himmler wanted them to make that the official ge geological doctrine of the Third Reich. So this Ananirba had natural scientific aspects, and some of the people who worked in it were pretty good historians and anthropologists. But many of the ones who were had to make concessions to the crazier ideas, the border scientific ideas, in order to get funding or work with Carl Maria Villagut, the open you know, Ariosopist who 
was Himmler's right-hand man in the Ananerba and what some of the religious research they did and the expeditions they did of like ancient Germanic runes. This Villagut guy was a member of Ariosophic groups before the war. And he would help sponsor these expeditions. He was not a scientist. So people had to make concessions to him. Um, when Ernst Schaefer, who was a botanist, did organize the Tibet expedition, which again had links to border science, the idea that you know, the, these ancient Atlantean Aryans who might have been related to aliens, when the flood occurred, they, they fled to the highest points on Earth to preserve their or Germanic civilization and religion. The idea is one of the places they fled was Tibet. That's one reason he wanted to research Tibet. So he sends a botanist, but the botanist has to take with him on an Arab scientists who are measuring people's skulls and, and even Schaefer's talking about how you know, the Tibetans look Aryan and their religion seems to be Aryan. And, and you know, so it's a mixture, the Anan Arba, of kind of an attempt to have a traditional research institute that does hard science but also investigates and is kind of infused by this faith-based belief in Indo-Aryan history, civilization, paganism, witchcraft. So I don't, want to, I don't want to suggest it's just doing that kind of stuff, but it mixes the two. You mentioned uh, in passing world ice theory. Can you go into a little bit more detail on that? Because that I found tremendously interesting in the book. Yeah, what I like, I mean, as World Ice Theory is a case study, it's the one border science that really had no direct link to any occult doctrine. There's no medieval version of World Ice Theory. A lot of occult doctrines have a variation in Western tradition going back to the Middle Ages or some kind of folk doctrine or folk religion. Um, World Ice Theory was invented at the end of the 19th century. It shows you that there are these border sciences which don't have to be embedded in the occult, but have the same epistemology of kind of a faith-based view of the universe, which they claim is scientific. So this guy, Hans Horbiger, has a dream. He's not a trained geographer or, or physicist, but he has a dream that there's giant moons of ice floating around and crashing into each other. And he wakes up and he's now convinced that that vision was an insight into how the universe had been created. Giant spheres of ice that at various sizes would crash into each other and create smaller spheres and create planets. And the early Earth, which was very, very cold for that reason, had multiple moons around it, but some of them then crashed into Earth at various points, which explains the floods in the Bible and the dying out of various you know, species over time. And he comes up with this kind of idea about how the universe was created and why the Earth went through various phases. He gets an amateur astronomer to help him write a book proclaiming this idea, I think in 1912, uh, called Glacial Cosmogony. And already already in, in the you know, pre-war period, geographers and geologists and physicists are reading and said, this is crazy. Um, one famous uh, geologist, I think, says, you could literally replace ice with, the, with olive oil at every stage in his book, and it would be no more or less true. Like, that's how, <laughs> how you know, unverifiable it was. And yet, especially in the 20s and 30s, we get the rise of this kind of folkish, racial, neo-pagan um, reaction to, to Weimar materialism and liberals and socialists. You start to see people who believe in world ice theory 
who are also interested in folkish pagan ideas or members of the Nazi party, kind of the two start to go hand in hand, which again is what I, why I argue the supernatural imaginary is so important because the suspension of disbelief and, and all these ideas about ancient races and frost giants and, and different phases of human racial development, they all reinforce each other. And they're all an alternative to conventional science and conventional political science and conventional sociology, which is seen as materialist and too complicated and too empirical. And so you start to see lots of people who are also Nazis or astrologers or occultists who like world ice theory. And Horbiger realizes in the 20s that he's not going to convince real scientists by going directly you know, to their conferences. They're just ignoring him. But he can go on radio programs. And, you know, the same radio program that might have an H.G. Wells special an hour earlier will have him on and then he'll talk about his theories. And people who are kind of semi-educated or aren't professional scientists like, oh, that's brilliant. Why, are, why haven't we heard that before? It must be that the Jews run all the universities, right? Jewish physics, Jewish this or that. So he becomes quite popular in the 20s. He then passes away. But his sons and this Philip Falf, the guy who helped him write the book become very popular in the Third Reich. Hitler gives Fouth an honorary degree because Hitler likes world ice theory. Himmler starts his own institute to support world ice theory and even organizes conferences initially to kind of prove that it's true. And then when too many scientists, even in the Third Reich, are like, this is crazy, he gets this thing called the Piermonter Protocol signed by the leading world ice theorists. It says, if you don't believe in the world ice theory in this way, you cannot be included in anything the Ananirba does. You're basically frozen out of research. We're, we're going to try to prevent you from ever publishing an article. It's kind of a soft kind of censorship of people who don't agree with Himmler, and in this case, Hitler's view of science. So it's a great example of one of these things that should never have seen the light of day, certainly never have been sponsored by an official party or by the state in the 30s and 40s. And then you think of the, how important science was in Germany. So the leading physicists, geologists, chemists, it's, it's remarkable. It could only have happened with someone like Himmler and Hitler in church. It, it sounds like they're so eager to believe this that they're going to manipulate the academic and scientific community into legitimizing it. And yes, and when they can't, they try to ignore those people. And what's interesting about the Third Reich, this isn't Stalin's Russia. So there are some pretty hilarious letters written to, if not directly to Himmler, to scientific journals that are debating this or to members of the World Ice Theory Group. Like, why are you, why do you keep publishing this stuff in popular magazines? You know, we're trying to create more and more uh, Germans fluent in mathematics. You know, we're trying to build the army. We're trying to, you know, enhance, isn't the Third Reich about science and Darwinism? And here you are pushing this stuff. So there are even people supportive of the Third Reich who, who don't get it, who are just kind of shocked. But, you know, then again, look, what, look at some of the stuff, the projects they carried out. How did these supernatural and occult beliefs later fuel Nazi racism and eugenics and contribute to the Holocaust? Excellent question. So the, the short answer to that is simply that the underlying desire to um, improve the race that infused British and American, German, 
French and Scandinavian science in the late 19th, early 20th century. In all those places, what you see are very small scale experiments or theories about, you know, should we sterilize certain groups? And usually when an actual policy was tried, it was done secretly, it wasn't continued, or there were other scientists who said, you know, this isn't really good science. Uh, we can't prove that you could improve races by eliminating certain groups or dissuading them from, from marrying or what have you. The same thing with eliminating different races. You see in colonial experiments in Africa, Western expansion in America, tens of thousands die, sometimes systematically, but it's usually a byproduct of trying to control certain space or um, you know, privilege one race over another. What the Nazis do is at a far higher, far greater scale in a far shorter period of time. And the added ingredient for me that explains where they depart from or, or radicalize all these practices that are already going on, these colonial and eugenical practices, is their supernatural thinking. Because whereas there's a kind of a natural barrier, whether it's capitalist rationality or the law or just scientific empiricism that prevents the Swedish or British or American colonial and eugenical practices from really eliminating millions of people, the Nazis can always resort to Ariosophy or world ice theory or conspiracy theories about the Vatican and Jews trying to eliminate the German race or destroy witchcraft as a justification for eliminating Jews or trying to recreate master races that were once around when Atlantis was the main civilization, things that you couldn't get away with in a more empirical universe. So that, again, the short answer is simply almost everything they do is exaggerated in terms of its scale and viciousness because they can always square the circle by drawing on these faith-based doctrines. And I argue, so, you know, without eugenics, Darwin, war, capitalism, modern industry and colonialism you wouldn't have gotten you wouldn't have gotten what the nazis carried out in terms of race and space but what makes it so horrible where it departs from the stuff that you see the belgians and the french and the british do in africa or the americans in the west is this supernatural thinking does that make sense it does and you make a couple of good examples in the book you show some illustrations of uh, propaganda posters where the Jews are associated with vampires and drawing on that folkloric Germanic tradition. Exactly. And I mentioned the werewolves as well. So, you know, it's not an accident that Jews are in, in German and Nazi propaganda. I mean, I, they were, there were already associations between vampires and Jews prior to 1933, as you just noted. And there was an association with vampires being a kind of primitive, degenerate monster from the Slavic East, right? They're almost always associated with Poland, with Romania, with Bohemia, with Serbia. They're not a monster that one associates in their minds with Germany. German monsters in folklore tradition are werewolves, which we'll, we can get to in a minute. Um, but then the Third Reich, openly, and, not, and Hitler, in, his, in Mein Kampf and elsewhere, associates Jews with vampires, kind of all-powerful, decadent, monstrous creatures which suck the lifeblood 
out of Aryan races or, or noble civilizations everywhere. They're the spirit of decomposition. They can somehow regenerate themselves. When they kill their host, they have to move elsewhere because they've already destroyed that society. And this is not a one-time thing. You see it in so many cases that it can't help but infuse their image of Jews, not just as some kind of disproportionately powerful group of capitalists, or you know they run the film industry or whatever it is traditional anti-Semitism does, or they don't accept Jesus. They're literally monstrous people who suck the blood and energy, life energy out of your civilization. And so I simply argue that this is an example of the ways that they magnify the so-called Jewish question, which exists in other parts of Europe, into an almost metaphysical supernatural battle between noble Aryan beings and these vampiric monsters that have to be eliminated. I'm not saying that's the only reason they carry out their anti-Semitic and policies and ultimately the Holocaust. But it's interesting how often these ideas get interwoven with their justification. You also have the idea that werewolves, whether it was Odin's wolves or berserkers, the Nordic tradition, are kind of positive monster who maybe go off the deep end sometimes and can attack a passerby, but also protect um, you know, peasants from interlopers. And, and have a kind of noble role in Germanic mythology. We have Rosenberg's, um, one of the people working in his office, did a dissertation on the werewolf in Germanic tradition and pretty much argues that while vampires are alien to Germanic tradition and are kind of evil, Slavic, Jewish, foreign uh, folkloric figures, the werewolf is a more or less positive figure that unlike France, where it's almost always a associated with witchcraft and demonology and something evil, in German tradition can be very positive. And so you bring that to the 20s and 30s, it's no wonder that you have a book called Werewolf by Hermann Lohns, which is written just before World War I, about German um, partisans fighting against the Catholic interlopers, they're basically Protestants, during the Reformation. And this book is very popular. And after World War I, right-wingers love this book because they associate it with partisan activity against the French and the Belgians and the Senegalese troops on the Rhine. And so the, uh, thousands of copies of Lone's Werewolf start to sell in the 20s. The Nazis sponsor it in the 30s. And there's even a paramilitary group called the Werewolf, which gets created in the 20s. Many Nazis belong to it. One of its leaders is, becomes a member of the SA, the Stormtroopers. And then you start to see the use of the term werewolf positively in the Third Reich. So Hitler calls one of his two headquarters the werewolf in the Ukraine. It's his werewolf headquarters. I mean, again, think about Roosevelt or Nixon calling their headquarters the werewolf. Okay. You have operations carried out against Jews and Slavs in the East. One of them is called the werewolf operation. And then when they're thinking, what is our end-all, be-all attempt going to be to fight off the Americans and, and even worse, the Soviets? This is our last-ditch effort in late 44-45. The SS gets charged with creating a partisan force of, you guessed it, werewolves. <clears throat> and what's fascinating about this, Hitler, Goebbels, and Himmler all agree on the name, werewolves, and they take out the H. 
So traditionally, in the previous two decades, when you saw werewolf, because it was a clever play on words, where, where, W-E-H-R, like Wehrmacht, is a German word for defense or armed force. So you could put the Wehr with the wolf, and it was werewolf, but it had this kind of military connotation or paramilitary connotation. When they resuscitate this idea in the World War II era, whether it's Hitler's own headquarters or the werewolf organization, they take the H out, which, as Peter Longerish, no, you know, not a historian known for fetishizing the supernatural, he points out, Himmler clearly wanted to do that because it was a direct link to folklore, that they wanted this to be seen as a kind of magical force linked to Germanic folklore of, of partisans who are going to pounce on you from the woods, men turned into wolves, not just a play on words. And they even create a werewolf radio station where there's a woman who howls like a wolf. And then Goebbels has his propaganda sending out radio messages that the werewolves are going to protect you from the communists. And if you don't you know, support the regime, you might get eliminated yourself in the dead of night. So it's, it's fascinating that the Third Reich ends with this kind of werewolf trope. All right, Eric, this has been a fascinating discussion. And we've only scratched the surface of your book. I know you go on to talk about supernaturalism in Nazi Germany during the Second World War, where they militarized some of these beliefs. So there's a lot more for someone to learn if they would like to. Where can someone go to learn more about your book? So you can order the book directly from Yale University Press on their website. It's available in both hardcover and uh, paperback on Amazon in multiple countries. There's now also translations in Italian and Polish, but um, you can get it in Great Britain, Canada, or the United States on Amazon. And I know it's in a, a number of uh, traditional booksellers as well, like Barnes & Noble. My guest today has been Eric Kurlander, author of Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. Eric, thank you for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Hey, this is Kevin Moore, and I want to thank you for listening to the premiere episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast. I'd also like to thank Dr. Kurlander one more time for agreeing to be my debut guest. If you've liked what you've heard today, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and consider giving it a five-star review. That'll be a big help in getting the word out about the show. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, head over to can'tmakethisuppodcast.com and check out today's show notes.